Chapter 1. January. Left leg, step back, one, two. Right leg, step back, one, two. Arms straight up beside the face. Head snap left and spin. Oh, for fuck's sake, Shannon, Morgan barked. For the countless time that afternoon, I tripped over myself and fell to the floor of her stiflingly hot lounge room with a thud. She mashed the stop button on her CD player midway through the chorus of Bills, Bills, Bills by Destiny's Child and shot me a frustrated look. No matter how hard I tried, I just could not complete a full spin. It was something about where my feet were positioned when I initiated the move that wasn't quite right. Every single time I fell. Every single time. I had almost nailed it once that summer during our choreography afternoons before spiralling wildly across the room. Take the dancing outside, please. Morgan's mum Val had drawled after I nearly smashed into a wall unit filled with her prized picture frames, cutesy knickknacks and that blue oriental print dining set that every housewife in Australia seemed to own at one point in the 90s. Val barely looked up from the latest copy of New Idea as she drew down on a cigarette. She was such a dramatic smoker, inhaling slowly until her cheeks collapsed. Tilting her head back gently, she would let out a long gust of smoke, almost sighing as she did. On the occasions that I relapse as a smoker now, that is exactly how I like to do it, Val style as though I'm in an old black-and-white film and someone has just shared the devastating news that my husband is secretly a Nazi. Pretty much the entirety of those summer school holidays at the beginning of my 14th year of life was spent at Morgan's house, inventing our own elaborate dance routines, sneaking cigarettes from Val's pack when she went for a nap, and talking about boys we had crushes on. Usually it was just the two of us, we would twist, twirl, jump and shimmy for hours on end to a soundtrack of the very best early noughties pop. Our playlist was broad. Everything from S Club 7's classic S Club Party and Shania Twain's Man, I Feel Like a Woman to Aaliyah's Try Again. Sometimes our friends Jessica and Nicole would come over and join in. They both went to dance classes at Julie's Jazzers every Saturday morning and were a hotbed of knowledge. They would painstakingly teach us, two of the most uncoordinated and rhythmically challenged people alive, the fabulous new routines their class had learned that week. But the real fun happened when Morgan and I would go rogue. Freestyle. That's when our creative sides really shone. We added to our very limited catalogue of movements, embellishing them with our own ideas. Sometimes we merged genres. There was one bit we invented that was essentially a mix between a snippet of Madonna's classic choreography in the music video for Vogue, those arm swells behind your head, and exaggerated extra camp jazz hands from the cheerleading comedy Bring It On. We spent Saturday and Sunday mornings recording our favourite clips from video hits for inspiration. Britney Spears was a ready source of high-energy routines that were not too complicated to learn. When we felt especially ambitious, we turned to Jennifer Lopez and tried to keep up with her fiery pace. The dance break in the middle of If You Had My Love was one of my favourites, although I never stood a chance of mastering it. For those three weeks in January before school returned, just me and Morgan, I was free. I felt a rare sense of security, 
away from the dark, desolate reality of my life. A school outcast, a loner trying to disappear in plain sight. Just dancing, singing and being silly, I was happy. For the many who have not heard of it, Yipoon is a small regional town on the central Queensland coast, smack bang on the Tropic of Capricorn. It is a 40-minute drive east from Rockhampton, the area's big smoke, better known as the beef capital of Australia. Rocky had two decently sized shopping centres and a McDonald's, so a trip there was met with huge anticipation. New clothes and a quarter pounder, what more could you want? Growing up in Yipoon, by far the most popular activity for adolescents was gathering around the three grey steel tables at the back of Keppel Bay Plaza. They were horribly uncomfortable and always cold, even in the dead of summer, but they were located just outside an entrance that was not often used and shielded from the car park by a wall of lattice. So it gave us privacy to smoke and talk shit without adults catching us. The small shopping centre boasted around 15 stores, a clothes shop for older ladies, the post office, a place to get your keys cut, a cafe that did amazing seasoned hot chips served with a side of sour cream, a Bilo supermarket, and a hippie shop that stunk of cheap incense and sold crystals, dream catchers, and books about witchcraft. Despite the unexciting roster of retailers, my friends and I would spend whole afternoons doing laps of Keppel Bay Plaza. We actually referred to it as that. Want to do a lap? Jessica would ask in her trademark drawl. We used to joke that she sounded as though she was on the verge of falling asleep, like she couldn't be bothered opening her mouth more than was absolutely necessary to elicit a few words. Come on, let's get a Coke, she would mumble, stubbing her cigarette out on the edge of the concrete garden beds that bordered those metal tables, tying her school jacket around her waist as she stood and pulling her long, blonde hair back into a high ponytail. We would shrug, gingerly drag ourselves up, and venture inside to the Arctic air conditioning. We walked the loop of shops once, twice, maybe three times, occasionally wandering into a few shops to stare at the same old stuff we had looked at a million times before, then return to the metal tables. The shopping centre was at one end of James Street, the main drag, which ran for three blocks down to the beachfront. Dotted along the way were a movie theatre, which always got new releases about two or three months after everywhere else in Australia, an ice cream parlour with a claim to fame of serving 30 scoops of ice cream in an actual kitchen sink basin, a novelty they creatively called the kitchen sink, another family-owned supermarket that had a frozen Coke machine, our favourite place to go on a blisteringly hot day, and a surfwear shop that none of us could afford to buy so much as a pair of thongs from. The most exciting thing that ever happened during my time in Yapoon was the rumour that McDonald's was finally building a restaurant, the town's first, on a vacant block of land out at Tarangonbar, a suburb about five minutes from the centre of town. That kept us enthralled for weeks. We could not stop talking about it. We tried to dig up as much information as possible, So I phoned the council and pretended to be from the fast food chain's head office. Nicole asked her mum's latest boyfriend if any of his builder mates were working on the job. We would jump on our bikes and madly pedal out to the apparent future home of the Golden Arches a few times a week to monitor progress. We were regular little junk food obsessed Nancy Drews. 
But it turned out that the patch of cleared land was to be the site of yet another drive through bottle shop, Yipun's Fifth. We were absolutely devastated. In the end, it would be another ten years before Maccas graced that town. At the ocean end of Yipun, a single rotunda sat on a patch of grass before the sand began. There was a surf club to the left of it, where lifesavers would set up during the busier summer months. The swells at the main beach were rubbish, though. Flat as a tack with a bit of foam, the locals would say. So surfers would head north to heavier conditions, leaving the main beach to be exclusively occupied by bored teens, local families taking their kids for a swim, and European tourists who'd got lost on their way to Cairns. On the other side of the beachfront was the sailing club, a dingy old building with flimsy walls held together by nicotine smoke stains and grime. For me, arguably the best metaphor for Yapoon was the annual coral spawn. Just as summer was about to begin, the reef off the coast of the north would secrete huge plumes of stinking foam, which would gently float across the waves and onto the shore. You couldn't swim for fear of being covered in gunk. The main street stank of rotting fish. It was disgusting. If it was particularly windy during the spawn, the fluffy mess would whip up onto the grass and blow over the road, just in front of the fish and chip shop. For weeks, we would be blanketed with the odour of rotting reef reproduction byproduct. Those few weeks aside, Yapoon was a pretty town on the surface. If you received a postcard from someone who had been there, you might be tempted to pay a visit yourself. It had a quintessentially sleepy vibe. Old people liked to retire there. Young parents assumed it was a good place to raise their kids. It was the sort of spot that would have been nice to stop in for three, maybe four days tops. But growing up there was an entirely different prospect. There was a palpable aggression to the place. It seemed as though a lot of kids just reached a certain age and suddenly became angry. Although, looking back now, I think for most of them, a kind of frustrated tension was always simmering away just below the surface. It rushed up and out of them when exploding hormones collided with intense boredom. I saw it all the time. The same boys I'd been good friends with in early primary school began to shift away from me in the final year before high school. Where once there was friendliness, I would gradually be treated worse and worse. I suppose the onset of adolescence brought with it a worsening insecurity towards their suspicions that I was gay. Boys would stomp around in packs, cranky about not having anything to do, looking for a fight or some other trouble to get into in order to pass the time. When they were old enough to get their licence, they would slowly cruise up and down James Street in their loud Commodores or Falcons, or imported Skylines for the ones whose parents had a bit of money, eyeballing those who dared to look at them a little too long. Binge drinking and low-level drug use were common for a lot of teens, myself included on the alcohol front. We would sneak out and go to house parties and absolutely write ourselves off most weekends. I'd had my first drink a year earlier, at 13, half a bottle of vodka mixed with a pineapple soft drink. I vomited all night until there was nothing left but the frothy remains of my stomach lining. The smell of pineapple still makes me sick. Like most of the stupid stuff we did, it just seemed like a good idea at the time. If being a teenager in Yapoon was tough, being a gay teen was downright impossible. I was a pastime for all those bored kids. I became their something to do, something to stare at, 
to whisper about, to gossip over. And shit, was there some gossip. There were always added embellishments as the rumours about me were passed from person to person, some of them admirably creative, others downright absurd. I used to lament to my friends that if I were to fart at one end of town, by the time I reached the other on foot, the story would have spread into how I had shit my pants. Shannon Malloy was a name everybody knew, regardless of which school they went to, what grade they were in, and whether we had even met. I was a bit like a novelty, but not in a good way. I was there to taunt, to abuse, to bash, to force out of any social circle that existed, to isolate from the peer group for being different. The very first time I saw someone else's view of me, a disgusting, weak, pathetic deviant, one so contrary to how I viewed myself, it was soul-destroying. Even worse was when, after hearing the voices enough, I started to believe them for myself. Most of the kids in Yapoon seemed to know more about me than I did. I heard you rooted that old man who works at the florist, a girl from the state high school told me at the back of Keppel Bay Plaza one day. It was a scurrilous accusation that made absolutely no sense, but it stuck. Someone who heard it there repeated it to someone else, who told another person, who added a bit in. All of a sudden, I was the dull 14-year-old gay kid who fucked the old florist. I didn't really understand that I was gay, or even what it meant to be gay, until long after I had escaped Yapoon and had time to process the gravity of it, away from the backdrop of constant torment. It sounds ridiculous now, but that's how things were not that long ago. Gay was a concept that was not popularised. There were no gay television or film characters, no openly gay celebrities or role models. The only examples of homosexuality were intensely negative ones. All I knew was that gay was bad, well outside the norm, and I desperately did not want to be gay. Life was a daily hell. If I was having a lucky stretch, the abuse would be purely psychological. The way I talked, the way I walked, the things I'd supposedly done, everything about me was up for grabs as a potential taunt. If I accidentally made eye contact with someone, if I sat up too straight, if my wrists were too weak, if my hips involuntarily swayed a little when I walked, it was all fodder. On the instances I showed too much excitement or enthusiasm, I also became a target. Take the interschool dance in grade 8 in my school's oversized hall. I was dancing with a bunch of girls from St Ursula's, our sister college, and for a brief moment I forgot about the need to be on guard and mute my feminine behaviour. So I just let go. I danced my little heart out almost perfectly pulling off the entire routine to the Steps bubblegum pop classic 5678. I was coming out of the cowboy lasso move, waving an imaginary rope above my head while turning, when I saw a group of footballers staring at me, their mouths agape. I knew what was coming, so I ran. They chased. I was not fast enough. I was never fast enough. They kicked the shit out of me outside the toilets. Being bashed was not a once-off, not by a long shot. There were the state school kids who chased me in their car and tried to run me down near the cemetery. There was the time at grade 8 camp, held in a picturesque spot called Stony Creek, about an hour out of town, when a group of boys tied me to a tree 
and flogged me with the oars from their canoes. There was the guy who I thought was nice, who told me a mystery boy liked me and wanted to tell me so down near the oval at lunchtime. The mystery boy turned out to be three boarders from way out west. Tough, angry country boys. They laughed maniacally, taking it in turns to punch me while I cradled my head in my hands and curled into a ball on the grass. It often felt as though time was both standing still and racing by at an alarming rate, depending on my mood. Pain lingered, like a weeping wound, while moments of rare joy were so fleeting that I wondered if they had even happened or whether I had imagined them altogether. I hated that town. Not just a little, but with a deep resentment no child should have bubbling away inside of them. And I spent my entire life there, bar two brief years when we lived five hours away on a property outside Mackay before returning to Yapoon. I hated who I was there. I hated myself. I believed that this was how life was going to be for me, forever, no matter the sort of person I was inside, even if I knew who that person was. As time dragged on, things only got worse. My first year of high school at the all-boys Catholic college was rough. I still did not act like the other boys. I did not play football like my older brothers Damien and Brett had. I wasn't tough. I tried to hide my feminine characteristics, but it came across as a timidness that ironically seemed to court more attention. As an Edmund Rice school and part of a broader family of old Catholic educational institutions, my school had lofty ideals of moralistic mateship that it simply could never live up to. On one hand, it wanted to produce gentlemen of the future. The school motto is Nudubita Dabita, which means do not doubt, it will be given. How someone might read that depends on their experience as a student. From my perspective, it meant that those who were popular did not have to try very hard to get by unscathed. They did not have to question whether good things would come. It was a given. The school desperately believed it was producing a crop of good blokes who could go out into the community and lead. But on the other hand, a horrific misogyny, a dangerously unhealthy hyper-masculine culture and rampant homophobia were allowed to fester. The principal and the teachers mostly turned a blind eye to it. They brushed it off as boys being boys. It was good to toughen up the weak men while they were young. But they threw a few hundred hormone fueled boys with something to prove into a confined space and made no attempt to shape or mould their good behaviour. It's little wonder they were met with disaster, especially when the only currency was masculinity. In that respect, I was flat broke. The school also had a long heritage of producing successful rugby league players who ascended from small-town glory to the national stage. It bred an entitled arrogance that manifested itself in a disturbing macho culture. The footy players were stars who ruled the roost. Everyone else was well down the pecking order. I wasn't sporty. I preferred not to run at all. I would have only grudgingly done so if fleeing a house fire. Even then, it would have to be a pretty serious blaze, and I would probably just break out into a gentle jog at most. I found inventive ways of skipping the annual sports day and swimming carnivals. Taking part would only put the qualities and mannerisms that made me hated on main display. I frequently had an injury or a nasty cold. I was needed in the library. 
or I would simply sneak off into the bush and hide behind the biggest tree I could find until the final bell rang to mark that the wretched day was over. The sad thing was that I'd loved sport when I was younger. I tried them all. I wasn't particularly good at anything, but I had a curiosity for new things and would sign up to everything. Soccer, tennis, squash, AFL, cross-country, even golf. When I got to be around 11 or 12 years old, sports stopped being about fun and enjoyment for the other boys. It became competitive. They wanted to win, and so they only wanted good players. When I signed up for basketball around that age, I was automatically placed into a team. They were all quite skilled at shooting, dribbling, blocking out and playing defence. I was not, but I put my heart and soul into it, running up and down the court, usually several steps behind the pack. I simply sucked. I arrived at our third game and immediately felt a weird tension hanging in the air. No one made eye contact with me. Something was clearly wrong. My heart began to rise in my throat in anticipation. Shannon, listen the coach began, crouching down to look me in the eye. We've had to swap you to another team. We don't have room for you in this one. It's all good though. Your new team is on today, so you'll still get to play. I knew he was lying about there not being enough room for me. I could see it in his eyes. He felt guilty. And I could see the looks on the faces of the boys in my team. They were relieved. As I trudged off, I heard one of them stifle a giggle. I wasn't sure why until I met my new team. I had been traded to a team made up of kids with intellectual and physical disabilities. They were a few boys short, so I was enlisted to fill their ranks. I don't know if my former coach had implied I had an impairment of some sort or whether it was purely a numbers game, but either way it hurt. After that, I never played sport again. Riding was more my thing anyway. It was a burning passion. My earliest memories feature letters, words, sentences. My mum, Donna, bought me a typewriter when I was five. It was a second-hand black and red monster that she'd brought back from a road trip. It was bulky and incredibly heavy. The ink ribbon always got caught in the carriage when I yanked the lever to start a new line, and the P key was wonky. But I absolutely loved it. As I learned more and more words, I would clack away for hours, assembling them together to create short stories. I was about six or so when I began producing the Arthur Street Chronicle, a little neighbourhood newspaper that I carefully typed out and then photocopied at the local newsagent. I would skip up one side of Arthur Street, where my childhood house was, and back down the other, shoving the folded few pages in mailboxes. I interviewed interesting people in our street and wrote their stories. I once covered the theft of an electronic address book, which was the height of portable technology at the time, from the art gallery. I liked the pursuit of an interesting story, like the dramatic and sudden price jump of Christmas hams one year, discovering it owed to a critical supply shortage of swine. So it's perhaps unsurprising that I would become a journalist. When my older sister Trinity was in high school, she got a computer. It was a Commodore that didn't really do much apart from allowing you to type, Not a Commodore 64 personal computer that you could play games on, but one several models before it. I could type and then send my creations to a huge dot matrix printer. It was my favourite thing to do. I spent more time in Trinity's bedroom than she did, pouring my heart out in the form of short stories and poems that filled the monochrome screen. 
In my teen years, writing became my escape from my increasingly fraught world. And when my family got a dial-up internet connection when I was 13, it was the happiest day of my life. I could spend hours writing, talking in chat rooms, emailing overseas pen friends I'd made in chat rooms, and later submitting short stories and silly little first-person pieces about my life to amateur online magazines. But my true saving grace in this rising sea of turmoil was my friends. I had a fair few acquaintances, all of them girls, and a handful of really trusted confidants. My best friends and I had met at primary school and formed close bonds. Morgan, Jessica, Nicole and Marianne. They were sweet and supportive, but, like me, ill-equipped to deal with the unique challenges I faced. And they weren't at high school with me, so between 8 o'clock in the morning and 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I was on my own. When the eighth grade ended, I was filled with a sense of relief. I had almost two months of reprieve. Days were spent with Morgan. When we weren't re-watching our favourite movies over and over again, I must have seen She's All That about a hundred times, we were talking about life. Most of the time, my life. And when we weren't doing that, we were dancing. Get up, Morgan sighed, offering me her hand. She pulled me to my feet and I dusted myself off dramatically. She swept her thick, shiny brown hair back in a ponytail. It was so luscious, like a flowing waterfall of hair. If a particularly expensive horse went to a salon for a day of pampering, it would come out with a mane that looked as exquisite as Morgan's. Let's go to KFC, she said, grabbing my hand and pulling me out the door. Morgan's house was at the top of a hill overlooking the town, the beachfront and the ocean. I think the reason we spent so much time cooped up inside in the middle of summer was that going out meant enduring the arduous walk back up that bloody hill again. But at the very bottom of it was the Dirty Bird. KFC, our favourite. It was one of three fast food places in town, the other two being Red Rooster and Eagle Boy's Pizza. I'll get a Colonel Burger. No lettuce, I ordered. I hadn't eaten vegetables once in my entire life. I was sick as a baby for several months and essentially could not process solid food. When the baffling health issue passed, I was old enough for solids and refused to eat anything except plain mincemeat and mashed potato for ages. My palate eventually broadened a little after a few years to take in meat, pumpkin, rice and pasta. I think it all gave me a weird aversion to anything that was not very solid, very meaty and very bland. And a large potato and gravy, I added. Case in point, potato was my favourite food. Hell, it still is. What many consider a starchy staple is, to me, an incredibly underrated and very versatile gourmet ingredient. Almost every afternoon that summer, we'd made the slow trek down the hill to KFC, trying not to fall flat on our faces on the near vertical incline. We would sit outside with our burgers, breathing in the cool sea breeze. The view was gorgeous from that spot. Huge palm trees gently swaying in front of a crystal blue backdrop of ocean with dozens of tropical islands dotted in the distance. It was lovely, but even better were the burgers. The only downside was that the KFC sat on a slightly elevated position next to a roundabout at the end of the circuit that pea platers would complete over and over again. And whoever sat outside was in clear view of the bored bogans rolling by below. It made for a tricky trade-off, 
a freshly cooked chunk of chicken between two soft pillars of bread with a dollop of mayo on top, juxtaposed against a parade of dickheads constantly driving by. On that particular day, the dickheads were out in force. It was like they sensed that the school holidays were almost over and were trying to make the most of being wankers between eight and three o'clock while they still could. A footy player from my school, who had had run-ins with the year before, roared by about five or six times in his shitbox of a Commodore while we were waiting outside for our order. He alternated between bellowing catcalls at Morgan and yelling, Faggot! at me. It was an intriguing strategy. Did he think winning over the pretty girl would be helped along by harassing her gay best mate? He seemed to think so. With every lap, he slowed to a crawl before the roundabout, leaned across the passenger seat and yelled through the half-wound-down window. On the final approach, before we ventured back up the hill, he directed his harshest of barbs at me. You're fucked when we get back to school, Pufta. The crowded tables of people stopped mid-bite and looked towards him as he sped off through the roundabout. Then their gazes slowly turned to me. And that, I offered dryly, is why I don't want to go back to school. I bit into my Colonel Burger and stared out at the ocean. <laughs>